the topic today is the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 31. Uh, let's open in a word of prayer. Dear Lord, uh, thank you for your order. Uh, thank you that you have created us with rules and laws that govern your universe and that those rules and laws um, and order extend even to our own human institutions. As imperfect as they are, Lord, help us to make them uh, slightly better through learning more about you, about your word, and about how your church is ordered. In Jesus' name, amen. So John Duncan uh, was a famous Scottish Presbyterian. Uh, he was known as Rabbi Duncan because he had a uh, love for the Jewish people. Um, and he is, uh, mo well, one of the things he is famous for is a, you know, uh, some aphorisms. And he said uh, that, first, I am a Christian. Second, I am a Catholic, small c. Third, I am a Calvinist. Fourth, a Pado-Baptist. And fifth, a Presbyterian. This order I cannot reverse. This is the idea of the center set as opposed to the bounded set. Um, the, uh, it also sort of encapsulates the way that the Westminster Confession is structured. First, what defines a Christian? Second, who is a Christian? Uh, third, how does one become a Christian? Um, the, uh, to whom should the mark of the covenant be given? And finally, uh, how do we govern ourselves? Um, we do not act as a mob, but in an orderly and reasoned manner. Um, I was, uh, now the center set here being the way that, uh, the, that this church operates, because you don't have to necessarily subscribe to all of these things getting to about right here, uh, in order to be a member of this church. This is as opposed to a bounded set. While I was doing research for this class, I came across a Sunday school. So you can kind of like be here in our church. You can be here especially, but you know, uh, in order to be an officer, you have to subscribe to all of these things. A bounded set keeps everybody on inside here and says you must subscribe to all of these things and outsiders are on the outside. In researching for this class, I came across a, uh, a, a Puritan church and they used uh, Westminster Confession chapter 31, the order and structure of the uh, church government to protect the bounded set of their own liturgical calendar and ban the evil pagan practice of celebrating Christmas. I got that far in the podcast and I was like, stop. Um, <clears throat> so let's get into it. Uh, chapter 31 of Synods and Councils. For the better government and further edification of the church, there ought to be such assemblies as are commonly called synods or councils, and it belongeth to the overseers and other rulers of the particular churches by virtue of their office and the power which Christ hath given them for edification and not for destruction to appoint such assemblies and to convene together in them as often as they shall judge it expedience for the good of the church. This is the way that we are structured. We necessarily, most Reformed churches are structured in a way as to have graded courts. First, the session, which is local, 
the presbytery, which is uh, regional, and then the general assembly. This is how the PCA is organized. And <clears throat> the uh, Bible teaches clearly, and we can see that in Acts 15, that the local church is not the final unit of the Christian church. It is certainly where the source of authority emanates. Uh, there is a building up because without a congregation, you cannot have a session. Without a session, you cannot have a presbytery. And without a presbytery, you cannot have a general assembly. So we invest authority up, upwards, and then it is given back to us in reverse. Um, <clears throat> Acts 15 says, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension, the local level, Others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So it's a graded court system, even in Acts 15. It belongeth, number two, to synods and councils ministerially to determine controversies of faith and cases of conscience to set down rules and directions for the better ordering of the public worship of God and government of his church to receive complaints in cases of maladministration, right? Forcing people to uh, become Jewish, essentially, in order to become Christian. And authoritatively to determine the same, which decrees and determinations, if consonant to the word of God, are to be received with reverence and submission, not only for their agreement with the word, but also for the power whereby they're made, as being an ordinance of God appointed thereunto in his word. Issues resolved ministerially. So we have to talk about ministerially for a moment. God alone is the Lord of the conscience. The judgment that is passed is the judgment of men. It is not infallible, correct? It has no intrinsic authority in and of itself. It is merely a, the judgment of men. Uh, when the Catholic Church uh, burned or hung Savonarola, uh, the Catholic Church says, we cut you off from the church militant now and from the church triumphant forever. Is the church able to do that? Is your local session able to cut you out from heaven? No, thank God. So, mm, that is true. <laughs> I tried to, to my uh, father-in-law for many years. <laughs> So we have no power, even up to the General Assembly, to dismiss people into hell or to permit people into heaven. That is not to say there is no authority, that is antinomianism, and this, this is authority, but it is earthly authority. We can excommunicate a member, uh, as we talked about last week, but we cannot certainly say that that person is damned to hell forever. Sinclair Ferguson, in his book, The Whole Christ, reminds us that the two main ways that the gospel is compromised are through legalism on the one hand and antinomianism on the other. He then says that it is common to fall into the mistake of prescribing a dose of antinomianism to heal legalism and vice versa, rather than the gospel antidote of our grace union with Christ. He goes on to argue that the church must present to the, whole, the world the whole Christ, clothed in his gospel. Jesus is both the Holy One and the Merciful One. He cleanses the temple, yet he eats with sinners. 
He gives Martha teaching on truth, yet he gives Mary only tears, even though they had both said the same thing to him about their grief. He gives each of them what they need most at the time and at the moment. On the cross, Jesus fulfills both the unyielding demands of the law, yet also the most wonderful purposes of God's love. So liberalism in the past tended to be uh, have a live and let live, anything goes attitude. And Keith and I were discussing that that is no longer the case. Liberals have embraced all of the religion with none of the grace and mercy, as we'll talk about in a moment. So being sent on their way by the church, this is Acts 15, uh, 15.3, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the laws of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. So there you have the very first council, right? So there is no small dissension and debate at the local level. You do not march this up the ladder as quickly as possible. Um, if there is a uh, dissension and debate at the local church, it is uh, no small amount. It should be well-reasoned and well-considered. It is a lengthy process, right? Then they were gathered together. This is what, uh, what happens at, uh, at councils. So all synods and councils since the apostles' time, whether this is number three, whether general or particular, may err, and many have erred. Therefore, they are not to be made the rule of faith or practice, but to be used as a help in both. This is to say, unlike the Catholic Church, that uh, you know, the councils are not infallible. The Pope is not infallible. Um, when Martin Luther was declared anathema, uh, that was a fallible decision that was made by the Catholic Church, right? Uh, there have been fallible decisions that have been made within the Presbyterian Church as well. Um, <clears throat> pardon me. <clears throat> Sorry, I woke up with a frog in my throat this morning. Synods and councils, this is number four, are to handle or conclude nothing but what is ecclesiastical and are not to meddle in civil affairs which concern the commonwealth, unless by way of humble petition in cases extraordinary or by way of advice for sanctification of conscience, if they be thereto, thereunto required by the civil magistrate. So it's at this point in the lesson where we move from pedagogical lane and take a right down topical boulevard, right? How, what, what, uh, how many of you in here have heard of Overture 23 and Overture 37 to the General Assembly in, uh, at the PCA in 2021? Yeah, right? <laughs> Thanks, Mark. Um, so examples of councils, right? Nicaea. What did Nicaea uh, determine or help to, to parse out? divinity of Christ, absolutely. The Westminster is a council, and that gives us the confession of faith. The General Assembly of the PCA is, in essence, a council. Um, I don't feel particularly connected to our presbytery. Do you? No? It's a good question. Why not? It's a good question. Yeah, uh, Joe, could we, uh, could we get the mic to, to Mark? Yeah, it's a good question. We are 
Yes. So help, help us. What are your thoughts on that? Should we be? Yes, I agree. Yes. What, what could happen if we... Is, is the mic on? Okay. What can happen if we lose sight of the presbytery, if we lose sight of the general assembly? Yes. We become a law to ourselves, right? Or um, also, presciently, things like this can happen. At the 223rd General Assembly in St. Louis in June 2018, the PCUSA voted unanimously to pass Overture 11-13 on celebrating the gifts of people of diverse sexual orientations and gender identities in the life of the church. It apologizes for the church's previously unwelcoming stance on LGBTQ parishioners, celebrates LGBTQ church pioneers, and states the church will welcome, lift up, and fight for the human rights of all people and this is a weird phrase, created in the eyes of God. In the eyes of God. That's strange to me. Mark, did you have something or do you have the microphone now? I, I, didn't. <laughs> I thought you were raising your hand, but you were just holding up the mic for Joe. Okay. So, <clears throat> Overture 23 and Overture 37. Overture 23, if adopted, would add the following language to the book of church order. BCO 16, chapter 16, which is officer ordination. Officers in the Presbyterian Church in America must be above reproach in their walk and Christ-like in their character. Those who profess an identity, such as but not limited to gay Christian, same-sex attracted Christian, homosexual Christian, or like terms, that undermines or contradicts their identity as, a new, as new creations in Christ, either by denying the sinfulness and hope of progressive sanctification, or by failing to pursue spirit-empowered victory over their sinful temptations, inclinations, and actions, are not qualified for ordained office. Mark. Can you explain why this... Uh, testing. David, can you explain why this is an issue? Why has this come up? So absolutely. that people will understand... Yes, absolutely. ...why we're proposing to... To amend, our, amend the Book of Church Order, exactly, which is our, our governing document, right? And as we talked about in that, uh, our, our, uh, in the, the language about the long and reasoned discussion, uh, it should be not amended lightly. So there is a, um, a strong movement, with, well, strong and uh, small but vocal movement within the PCA called Revoice. Has everybody heard of Revoice? Yeah, no. So Revoice is a, uh, a group of pastors who affirm that they can have same-sex attraction, be identified as not acting on that same-sex inclination, but also true to the founding documents and uh, the, the, of the faith, the scripture and the book of church order, the Westminster Confession, and also serve as officers within the church. Um, Mark? Well, it particularly revolves around the ruling of the Missouri Synod yes. on a pastor who claims to be what they call side B homosexual. And so I think this thing is to say you shouldn't be identified as a homosexual pastor. I mean, that's like saying I'm an adulterer pastor or yes. I'm a 
you know, killer pastor. I mean, so I think the idea there, at least as I understand it, is to, if someone has a notorious sin profile that would follow them into the pulpit, yes. that they shouldn't be allowed. I mean, it's just, we're not saying you can't be indifferent, you can't take the sacrament. So this revolves particularly around the piety, if you want to call it that, sure. of, the, of our pastors. So I want to talk a little bit about the term identity that's uh, contained twice within that passage, right? What, what does that mean? What is identity? And like, I think, uh, importantly, has the definition of that word changed recently? Yeah, well, do you want to t- t- speak on that a little bit? Mm. Okay. What was it before? It's become a personal choice. Um, what was it before is what God has declared it, that you are created in the image of God, man and woman. Yes. Now it's become a personal choice of your, your identity. You know, a man can now choose to be a woman, a woman can now choose to identify as a man, a dog, a bird, or whatever you have. So my, my question is, does the proposed wording of Overture 23, what does the term identity mean in, that, in this proposal? Okay. I mean, is it, so I, I would agree that that's probably the intent, uh, but I don't know that it's defined as such, right? Do we have, um, this is an 80-word long sentence, um, or, um, yeah, no, that's the other one, that's 37. Uh, but, you know, so um, I find Tim Keller to be, now, first of all, it's not my intent to come down on either side of this uh, issue. Um, it is an issue that remains an important one and is one that is, you know, pretty hotly debated across the country in, in different presbyteries, including our own. Um, now, it's my understanding that we may have voted on this yesterday, and I don't know that. Um, so Tim Keller says, footnote for the PCA Overtures discussion. Terms like Trinity are already in our Constitution documents, uh, <clears throat> the WCF, and have been defined and refined for centuries. A term like identity, which already means something different than it did 50 years ago, has not been. So Tim's point there is let's not enshrine the term identity into our Book of Church Order when the very term itself has changed over the last 50 years and may be an antiquated term in 20. Mark. Uh, I, I think the idea here is to not have a, any kind of a hyphen in front of pastor. So that's the identity they're talking about. So they're, they're worried that pastors in the PCA are going to uh, be revolving around this hyphenated uh, is that an adjective or a noun? Pronoun. I don't know. But uh, do you see what I'm saying? I, no, I do. I that's, do. That's, so I understand Keller's argument, but yeah. I, I don't know that that gets to the concern. And I, I agree with you that is likely the intent. Does this do that? Yes. Officers in the Presbyterian Church in America must be above reproach in their walk in Christ-like character, in their character. I think we can all agree and stipulate to that. 
Those who profess an identity, such as, but not limited to, this is a parenthetical, gay Christian, same-sex attracted Christian, homosexual Christian, or like terms, that undermines or contradicts their identity as new creations in Christ, either by denying the sinfulness of fallen desires, such as, but not limited to, same-sex attraction, or by denying the reality and hope of progressive sanctification, or by failing to pursue spirit-empowered victory over their sinful temptations, inclinations, and actions, are not qualified for ordained office. Lois. I uh, kind of object to making a list because it's easy for somebody to say, well, I'm not on that list. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. I'm not on that list. I may be on another list. Ed. Reading through the comments uh, <clears throat> regarding members of various presbyteries across the United States, that has been one of the concerns is opening up the language then opens up a door to reinterpretation, which may end up going down a path that was not intended. And there was one letter especially that talked about the current wording meets the need. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's, a, that's one of the, lar la, the larger arguments and debates is the current wor wording already gives us what we need. The response uh, to that is, well, this is further clarification. Now, I'd like to read this. <clears throat> Ruling elder Kyle Keating from the Missouri uh, Presbytery was a member of the Ad Interim Committee on Human Sexuality. During the report of the AIC on Wednesday, Keating spoke about the fact that he had, has had, and does have to battle with same-sex attraction, even as a married man. Keating went to the microphone late in the debate on Overture 37, which we'll read in a moment, and he said this, I stood on the stage with several men as part of the Ad Interim Committee on Human Sexuality, and myself and one other of those men described in brief the reality of our stories, that we have and do experience same-sex attraction. I've heard from many speakers that these overtures and this language is not intended to apply to certain subset of people if they communicate that known by self-profession for, for remaining sinfulness. It could mean a number of things. And to be honest, it could possibly mean what I did on the podium yesterday. I don't believe it was the intent of those who put these overtures to disqualify men like me from ordained office. I think, however, that these overtures are worded in a way that could very well be used to accomplish that purpose, to Ed's point. Does the body really wish to put this language in our book of church order that could potentially be used to disqualify men in good standing who are a part of the kind of work that put together this report on human sexuality. John Payne, responding to this, is a PCA elder in Tennessee, teaching elder. <clears throat> if the PCA study report declares that it's unwise and inappropriate for ordinary Christians to identify as gay, this is the report on human sexuality, who, who's read that? You listen to it? Yeah, yeah. Tim uh, Keller and uh, DeYoung, Kevin DeYoung, uh, read it uh, on a, a podcast. So um, I'd encourage you to go out and look at it. It's a you know, pretty important document. It's on the front page of the PCA General Assembly website. Um, and it took you know, a number of years to, uh, to compile and to agree on. Tim Keller's in it, on there. Like, so the, a lot of these folks who fall on both sides of this issue actually participated in the uh, report on human sexuality. So how much more should this apply to ordained officers who, according to scripture and Overture 23, must be abro above reproach in their walk and Christ-like in their character? 
should ordained officers in the PCA be permitted to identify as gay or LGBTQ in Christ, no, LGBT in Christ hashtag on social media? Are they qualified for office if they do? These are important questions present, presently facing the PCA. The BCO amendment in question, therefore, not only provides guidance and clarity on these controversial matters, but incorporates into our Constitution that which the study report so helpfully affirms. Mark. I th and I th again, the issue here is that concept of notorious sin. Yes. Where everybody knows. See, I, I don't know what your sins are, Dave, and I don't particularly care to know, but if you published a book yes. and talked about your kleptomania sure. and, for example, this would be it is the a problem. issue, okay? Now, now it's notorious. Everybody knows. Yes. Okay, so... So, you know, like uh, Rosaria Butterfield, right? Uh, has written a couple of very helpful books on uh, same-sex attraction, uh, of being uh, li liberated from uh, that lifestyle, uh, is now married to a uh, pastor, um, and has raised uh, several children. If Rosaria, say, was a man and was seeking ordained office, because she's written a couple of books saying, I struggled with this, this is part of who I am, I want to be able to help folks like, like me, should, should that person be disqualified from office? I heard yeses and noes. Okay, so this is my, this is my point, right? So we, uh, in, oh, yeah, please. I've read Rosaria Butterfield's books, and she would never identify herself at this point in her life as a gay Christian. She would identify herself as a Christian who has been saved and delivered and transformed. Right. And if whatever the sin is, we're called to repentance. And as we're having this discussion, I'm thinking how many of us, myself included, have Christian labels. I'm a homeschooling Christian. I'm a stay-at-home mom Christian. I'm a whatever it is. Patriotic Christian. And, or, or I'm a Presbyterian Christian or I'm a Baptist Christian. Um, that whole issue of identity, she talks about a lot in, in a book called um, something about openness unhindered. Yeah. And, um, which doesn't really talk about sexual identity very much, but just what our identity is in Christ. Mm -hmm. So Tim Keller said, or he, uh, T. Coffin, I don't know who this is. In my judgment, it would be unfortunate to introduce psychosociological jargon into our constitutional standards. The term identity is not found in the English Standard Version of the Bible, nor in the Westminster Standards, nor in the Book of Church Order. Josh. I think just a, um, something that's helpful to think about in terms of the structural issues here that we're talking about in terms of the hierarchy of you know, graded session or, uh, courts and graded courts, yeah. that sort of thing is that just like is in you know, politics, you know, our hope should not be in people you know, all agreeing getting this quote unquote right. Yes. You know, in, in some sense, we ought to be, well, we definitely should be praying for all the people that are deliberate, deliberate yes. in the 
with. However, part of the wisdom that we have in Scripture of this, these graded sessions and so forth is to have correction for where there might be abuse. So right, that right now, I mean, I, the way I look at it, you could, you could see how the current uh, vagueness, if you want to call it vagueness, in the, the book of church order um, could be abused. Yeah. Um, you could also have, you know, if this change takes place, you could have the abuse that uh, was described by one of the people that you just um, quoted from, of it being used um, aggressively to preclude um, qualified um, men from yeah. being elders. And um, part of the system that we ascribe to, that we see described in Scripture, is one that helps correct for those errors in that you have a place to go yeah. um, with the abuses that may happen. So our hope is never going to be in human institutions getting it all right. Right. Um, you know, we have to uh, pray for those that are deliberating and then uh, trust that the Lord is going to use um, the courts that he has ordained uh, and uh, that we ascribe to. Yes, absolutely. So then it harkens back to uh, the uh, 31.3, all synods and councils since apostles' time, where they're generally particular may err and have erred, right? So we, we can't get everything right. Um, and then we do have uh, appeal and trial up through, the, uh, up through to the General Assembly. So now... Uh, a lot of the current year overtures uh, for the General Assembly is happening in 2022 uh, surround trials, surround the Book of Church Order and trials and due process and uh, the rights of the accused and that kind of thing because of a particularly uh, contentious trial that occurred in the Pacific Presbytery uh, over the last couple of years. Um, so that is going to be hotly contested and debated in this upcoming General Assembly. Uh, <clears throat> so to, um, yeah. Uh, something I think that for a lot of people that don't come from a more, this type of an ecclesiology, it's difficult to understand even what's going on with the trial. Like that seems like foreign language, you yeah. know, to, you know, that, you know, that happens in, you know, legal courts, like what's going on when you're talking about a trial. Yeah. I think people don't realize that, you know, our, our book of church order outlines the ways in which you can bring a complaint and that there's a process for dealing with that. Yes. And, and like you've described, it starts at the session level and then is elevated to the presbytery. And then at general, er, at general assembly, there's committees that are, prescribed to oversee certain things, and mm -hmm. one of them is a judicial committee. And so in the case where you have, um, you know, abuses, like the, the claims in, in uh, the Pacific Presbytery, you know, basically abusive leadership. Right. Um, that was something that was brought to the session, was brought to the Presbytery, and then elevated to the um, uh judicial committee. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that it's kind of difficult sometimes for people to understand if they're not familiar with Presbyterian church government, even what we're talking about when we're talking about trials. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's a really helpful outline, uh, Josh. And I think it is up to us as the session to be mindful about helping people to understand that. And I think it's one of the uh, ways that we um, have not been very good uh, in my mind. Mark. You know, I think people need to... You're on. Okay. 
I think people know, need to know what's at stake here, yeah. which is the unity of the denomination. Mm -hmm. And there have been enough issues, for example, with the Peter Lightheart trial and yeah. federal vision not being condemned as it should have been, mm -hmm. uh, that there are enough people who <coughs> are having doubts about staying and will leave and form a new denomination. So. Mm -hmm. This is a big issue. I, I agree. That's actually why I'm bringing it up. Um, um, so, oh, yeah, please, Josh, run. Go for it. No, no, no. This is exactly, like, I only have five and a half pages of notes for so, this precise reason. I mean, thinking about, like, courts in the, the, the courts of the church. Yes. It, one of the, the um, concepts that is important to think about is authority. Yes. Right? So we recognize the authority that the government has. And that's why it has courts, right? Is because this is an authority that it has to administer justice. Well, similarly, the church has authority that God has given it. And so when we're talking about the different ways that, you know, a complaint or a trial is, takes place or, or appeals are done, it's appealing to the authority that God has given the church. Yes. So that's why when we're talking about courts, it's the same concept. It's that, you know, there's spheres of authority, and we're talking about the particular authority of the church to administer um, itself according to the Bible. Absolutely. So um, just to, you know, sort of f finish up, uh, there the last of the arguments in favor of uh, 23 and, and 37, and I would, I'm not going to read 37, so I'd encourage you to go and, and find it online. It's very easy to find. Um, the, the Book of Church Order is a practical guide. Uh, this is clarity of application. We've, uh, we've discussed that a little bit. Um, save for two examples, First Timothy and Titus, qualifications for elder are all character-related. This is uh, one of the points. Do, can anybody tell me what, uh, what are the two that are not character-related? Well, the one for sure that's not character-related is the ability to teach. Yeah. I don't know if this is the second one you're thinking of. There's a debate on what it means for your children to be faithful. So does that mean your children Man, must yeah. be believers or right. to show that you've parented and disciplined well? Yeah. John Piper had a really good uh, video on that because his son uh, has uh, left the faith. Um, and uh, hmm? yes, <laughs> I would agree. <laughs> one of the few. No. Um, so uh, he, well, so the, uh, it, would, it would be managing your household, correct, yeah. Um, so it does not disqualify men who struggle with a particular sin, but it clarifies in the way that we've been talking about, you know, what, what is identity and that kind of, this, this is the argument in favor. Um, I, I'm, I am unsure that the language as written does that. Um, I, I, I don't know exactly where I would come down if asked to vote on it, um, but I'm, I remain unsure that the language does what the proponents uh, would, would like it to. So, other questions, uh, comments, Keith? Um, a couple broad questions and then a very, uh, comments that are very specific questions. So, um, I, I've, you know, through the Air Force career, I've been in lots of different church government systems. Um, so one thing, I'm kind of a, I guess, a partially reformed in some ways on this topic. I see the great benefit of having a robust statement of faith. 
I don't know if I particularly need something so particular as, as the full confession, but certainly something more than even the Baptist faith and message. So, so on the one hand, I, know what I, I like to know what I'm getting myself into. I like to know what to expect from the church so you don't have fights every week. So I think that's the benefit of a confessional or a, some kind of a statement of faith or what some people would say, what we teach. It's more of a what we teach versus you have to believe this. Yes. Um, on the other hand, you do want to have corrections at times, but like say the PCA, the General Assembly made a decision today and went a road that I didn't agree with, I'd almost feel like, well, I just joined something. I thought I knew what I was getting myself into. That organization has changed, and I guess I need, maybe need to part ways. And maybe that's okay. One of the things when I do my abortion series, I'm going to ask, should abortion be in a confession? Like, where central is that on a, on a rings diagram? And it... At one point, it almost seems a little odd to me that we would hold to a confession that it has not changed a lot in hundreds of years. Like, you would think there would be things that we would want in that are essential to our faith, because every confession is going to be particular to its day and reactive to what's going on. So, but my main question is, um, do, do we, what, what is the purpose of a confession? Is it to say, this is how we're going to organize? Because we almost have to make a decision on this, right, church government. We have to decide how we're gonna, where that authority lies. We know the Bible gives the church authority, but exactly what does that mean? We talked yes. about that last week. But are we saying that this is ours because this is the only faithful reading of scripture? Or it's, you know, this is the preponderance of evidence, to use legal age. So, like, is this the way, because I find turning to Acts 15, you know, that, that's not robust biblical data. That's like, it's the church is in transition. There's not a lot of details there, but I see a lot of general wisdom. Like, I, w- I would, you know, as a Baptist, I would give a lot of wisdom to the, to the presbytery structure, but I, I wouldn't say, man, it's just so hard, explicitly biblical, like you have to do it that way. And so that's another question I have, is how much do we just rely on general wisdom, which of course you have to at some point. So there is great overlap between the confession and the book of church order, but they are very distinct, right? So when the WCF was written, uh, it was the Presbyterians who were being courted by the Anglicans and the uh, uh, Congregationalists to fight on one side or the other of the English Civil War. And the way that the, uh, the Anglicans um, lost in the end was they would not allow the Presbyterians to have their council. And so the Congregationalists under, um, uh, what's his name, Cromwell, uh, went ahead and allowed for the council at Westminster um, and earned the, uh, so, you know, talking to, you know, about that, the, the sort of combo of politics and, uh, and church, yeah, there is a distinctly political reason that the WCF is constructed in the way that it is. Um, the revisions over time have been, you know, sort of, uh, um, Exactly, yeah. So that's why the civil magistrates in the original 16, sorry, uh, 46 version were allowed to call church councils uh, and why the American revision in 17 something or other, (laughs) uh, you know, that that language was removed. Um, So uh, to, to answer your question, that, that is like, yeah, the, the ordering of the church, and I do believe, and I've, uh, um, that if Moses were to walk into a church today, the one that he would recognize uh, most readily would be a Presbyterian church, one that has elders and order and sessions and courts. Um, Terry. 
So no matter what the issue is, if our local session has a united opinion, is there any reason why the entire session wouldn't go to GA? That's a good question. Because each of you would have a vote. Yeah. Good question. And that's Mark. why we need to be connected to our presbytery. Thank you. Yes. Uh, so why address this here? Uh, any, any remaining comments? Ed, please. A totally separate issue to this, though, is that uh, whatever happens in terms of the language change, uh, I remember a few months ago hearing John MacArthur give a speech about rem reminding that the the gay person that is, that is struggling with it and sincerely seeking Christ um, is not our enemy, that they're, they're a mission field. And whatever happens, I hope that the language doesn't serve as an impediment to those that would you know, struggle with it and really want to come to Christ and think, well, this isn't the denomination for me. Yeah, so I would agree. Good thoughts. Mark? My rejoinder to, to Ed is this is not about the general parishioner. Yes. This is the same as we did to Tullian Chavidian, Billy Graham's son, right. when he had adultery and left his wife. It's no different. It's a notorious sin for pastors. Yes. Okay, so we're not talking, we all know that we, we're all, you know, equal at the foot of the cross, mm -hmm. but we're talking, this is about the concept of do we have expectations of personal piety from our pastors? Um, and so that's the difference is, I yep. mean. <laughs> I don't think those two statements are contradictory <laughs> at all. Um, I, I think, well, so for, you know, uh, to, to sum up, um, the count, like, this is dry. The, the WCF is, is dry, but it is a, a breathing document. That, is, that impacts us to, till today, because these councils are impact the way that we may, in fact, run our church on a uh, on a day to day basis. In fact, in the Book of Church Order is extremely important in how we run the church. Um, well, do you have something or? Amen. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Last comment, Andy. The Book of Church Order in this case with Overtures 23 and 37, where or how often do we see changes, do we ever see changes to the confession or revisions? How often does that happen? Do we think of that like making a constitutional change versus a a law in the Book of Church Order from a, a U.S. government perspective, do we look at these foundational documents and revise them, or how often do these synods and how much effect do these synods have um, at that basic level? On the Book of Church Order, like, they can have uh, a great deal of impact. On the confession itself, that, you know, to, to the point, I forget who made it, it has, Keith, I think, that it hasn't changed very much in, you know, uh, hundreds of years. Yeah, there are, there are overtures every year, and, and it is, um, uh, I, off the top of my head, I can't think of uh, recent ones, 
Um, but uh, the, they are very much impacted by, you know, hot topics in culture and the new life. So th this year it's all about, you know, uh, reforming the trial system in the Book of Church Order. Last year it had to do with human sexuality um, and uh, so on. Josh, did you have uh, something? Okay. Um, yeah, thank you so much. Uh, that answer your question, Andy, or? Yes, I saw there were 48 Yes. Not many, I think um, nine passed. And of those nine, so then all of the presbyteries have to vote in a two-thirds majority to, uh, to pass in order for the Book of Church Order to be changed. Thank you very much. Let's, uh, Joe, do you have the mic? Do you want to close us in prayer? Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for being able to come together today and uh, to look at your word. Uh, we thank you for Dave and all his hard work. Um, we do pray for unity in, in our denomination. Uh, we pray that you would prepare our hearts for worshiping you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you.